just go before us in the next 30, 40, 50 minutes that we're going to spend together in your word. Um, God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, that you'd help us to receive it. Pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up in this place today and in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Happy Mother's Day. I should maybe just explain, because um, again, I, you know, we've had several new people come over the last year. Maybe this is your first Mother's Day with us. Uh, I don't think this needs a ton of explanation, but I don't usually do like a Mother's Day sermon. Um, mothers, here's, because here's, mothers, here's what you need. And again, not, you need Jesus, just like we all do, right? And so we just, uh, um, yeah, that's what we talk about is Jesus uh, from the text. But mothers, we do, we do love you. Glad you're here. Romans chapter 6 is where we are, we are at um, as we're journeying our way through the book of Romans. This year, today we come to the end of chapter 6. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 23. So let me, let me read that and we'll get into it. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul says this in verse 19, Romans chapter 6. I'm speaking in human terms Because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, please help us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what we've been looking at as we've journeyed through chapter 6 over the last couple weeks is the process of sanctification that Paul was describing. Uh, If you were following along as I read the text there, you see the word sanctification stated plainly in both verses 19 and 22. Here's what I want us to understand, and and we're going to talk about this again today. It's primarily the idea, although the word has not always been mentioned, of what Paul's been talking about uh, throughout this chapter, is that sanctification is the process by which God, through his word and his spirit, conforms our lives into the image of Christ through all of life's varying circumstances that come to us through his providence. Now, I know that was a lot. I know it didn't rhyme. I know it wasn't alliterated. Let me read it again, okay? Sanctification is the process by which God, through his word and his spirit, conforms us or molds us and shapes us, conforms our lives into the image of Christ through all of life's varying circumstances that come to us through his providence. To just state it another way, maybe a little more simply, God is working to make you like Jesus. That's what he's doing. And this process is not just a part of the Christian life. Hear me on this. You've got to understand this. Like, is sanctification really relevant, or how important is it? Listen, this process is not just a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Everything that comes to you 
in your life, once you put your faith and trust in Jesus and become a Christian, it is all sanctification in everything. For those who are in Christ Jesus, this is what God is doing. He is conforming us to the image of his Son. Paul has been explaining the realities that took place at the moment of our justification when we were legally declared to be righteous through faith alone in his son. And he continues to speak uh, in this this chapter of how these realities come to bear in every single moment of our lives. And And the primary, or we might say central reality that we have talked about often throughout this portion of Paul's letter is that we have somehow, supernaturally, we have become united to Christ What we've seen in chapter 6 and at the end of chapter 5 is that we were buried with him. We were raised with him. We were crucified with him. We were, and this is a strange phrase, but you'll remember the beginning of chapter 6, we were baptized into him. That our lives have been united to Christ. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about that I think is is important that we've not really fully touched on yet, again, there are things that as we're kind of cruising through, through Romans, um, like in a lot of ways we're taking our time, but in, for, in a lot of ways we're also just kind of skimming the surface. And so there's some things that we have not hit on yet that I want to emphasize this morning. And, and one of the things I want to talk about is this reality that this process of sanctification is a process that is both, both mysterious and majestic. There is both mystery and majesty in this process of sanctification. The, the, um, there are a lot of analogies that could be used. Paul's been using a lot of different analogies, metaphors, word pictures to describe this process. Um, one of the, the analogies, not that he uses, but that, that comes to mind as I think about mystery and majesty in this process of him shaping us into the image of Christ is that of the birth of a child. Um, you know, if you've ever been there or, or, or witnessed that, like, uh, it's it's hard to describe. It will definitely change you. Um, you you see what's happening, and yet you can't believe what's happening, right? Um, you know, kind of how it works on one level, right? You know how it works, and yet on the other hand, you know that what you are witnessing is totally supernatural. At the same time. And that's kind of how it is in this process of sanctification of God working to unite us with Christ. There are things we can get a handle on, and, and they're glorious. There's another part that is, is somewhat mysterious. Uh, there are people throughout history that have often referred to the process of sanctification as somewhat of a mystery. There was a... Um, a Puritan writer back in the 17th century named Walter Marshall, who wrote a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And his premise for the book was 1 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. There was another uh, very well-known Puritan writer named John Owen. John Owen is one of my favorite Puritan guys uh, to read. He, you know, back in the 1600s, he published, not just wrote, but just, just published Eight million words, which was, which was a lot. And primarily what he wrote on was this process of sanctification and how once we come to Christ that God goes to work through his word and his spirit to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And, and, and John Owen, who I would consider to be somewhat of an expert on it, said this. He said, the work itself, referring to sanctification, the work itself is secret and mysterious. 
He goes on and he says, As we are not in this life perfect in the duties of holiness, no more are we in the knowledge of its nature. As we are in this life not perfect in the duties of holiness, in other words, we don't live it out perfectly, no more are we perfect in fully understanding the nature of it. It is both majestic but also somewhat mysterious. And I, and I point this out here this morning because um, I want to acknowledge somewhat of the tension I feel in trying to practically point out, on the one hand, how this process works and what our role is in it, and that's part of what Paul is trying to do, and yet understanding that without question the process is totally supernatural, and it's not actually you who do it, but it's Christ who dwells in you. And this is why Paul talks the way he talks sometimes in in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Now, now why, why do you talk that way? Unless it's true. He says, I worked harder than them all, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. If you look at the first part of chapter 19, I think Paul is acknowledging some of the mystery to this process. He's been ta- using this metaphor of slavery, and he says here in verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's, he's almost kind of, he's not really apologizing, but he's kind of like apologizing for the analogy because analogies break down because there's a part of this that is mysterious. And he says, I'm, I'm speaking to you in this in this metaphor um, to try to help your natural mind under, understand it. And, and I, again, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm pressing this this morning is because how many of you, very practically, have ever been confused as to why you can't change? Anybody? Or is it just me? I feel very confused at times in my life, even as a pastor, someone who has the, the, the privilege not just the responsibility, but the privilege of, of studying God's word week in and, and week out and having time, extra time that by God's grace, the, you guys, the church, gives to me to be able to study and to pray and to, and to prepare. And be, again, the reason I'm, I'm pressing all this is because I feel this very much because I feel the struggle at times in my own life of of wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ and yet still struggling with sin. And the process is both mysterious and majestic. And I want you to know this morning that if you find yourself in a season where it just seems like you just can't break through, it's not that you won't ever break through. There is absolutely hope. But I want you to know that undoubtedly confusion is definitely a part of this process called sanctification. Amen? There'll be times when things are confusing and also do not lose the wonder of God's work in you. Don't lose the wonder of that. That not just in some things, there are not just areas of your life, certain compartments in which God is at work to make you like Jesus. Again, brother, sister, in everything. He is at work to make you like Jesus. Sanctification is not just a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And no matter what comes to you, good, bad, or ugly, it is part of his process to conform you into the image 
of Jesus. Now, there are a couple of things here from the text that, that I want us to consider. One of them has been mentioned earlier in the text, earlier in the passage, but is still mentioned again here in this passage, and we just haven't pressed it enough, and I, I just can't get out of Romans 6 without going back and picking some of this up and showing where it's at um, in this text as well. But it is this idea of considering or counting or reckoning ourselves dead to sin and also the idea of presenting the members of our body um, as slaves to Christ. These things go hand in hand. Look back, I did not read this verse, but look back in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. It's a very important idea, which Paul says in different ways here. But in verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word consider there is the same word. It can also be translated in English translations as sometimes count or counted, that we must count ourselves dead to sin. In fact, it's the same Greek word that Paul used uh, very repetitiously back in chapter 4 where it says that God counts us righteous in Christ, that he counted Abraham righteous. I, I said we could also use the word reckon. I kind of like the word reckon. I'm not, how many King James people do we have? Anybody love the King James Bible? Tracy, I knew you'd get a, Tracy raised her hand high. Listen, all English translations, it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they're good, they're, they're fine. No English translation is perfect. Uh, the Bible's inspired in the original languages, primarily Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. But I actually like the King James word here, in verse 11, it says, so you also must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This idea of reckoning, considering, counting ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus um, is something that where we are, to, we are to believe in the moment what God says to be true about us, Okay? Um, it, it, let me define it in another way, is that that which was done decisively, listen carefully, that which was done decisively and irrevocably by God at justification. Okay, so what did he do at justification? He declared you to be righteous in Christ. That which was done decisively and irrevocably by God at justification must be reckoned to be true again and again by us through the Spirit's power in sanctification. Are you with me? Again, I know these aren't short, little, cute, alliterated phrases, but guys, this is so important if we're going to understand our role in the process of sanctification. Is that what God did decisively and ir irrevocably or unchangeably at justification, we must reckon to be true again and again. In sanctification, we must reckon ourselves to be dead. Why? Because we are actually dead. Reckoning, considering, counting yourself dead to sin, it is the idea of acting upon something that you believe to be true. Acting upon something that you believe to be true. You all showed up here this morning at 10 o'clock because you got up this morning and you, and you knew whether you thought about it or not. We meet at 10 o'clock at the Amish Country Theater. You knew that to be true, and so you acted upon it, and you got dressed, and you brought yourself here. You reckoned it to be true, you knew it to be true, and so, and so you came. In the same way, 
when temptation, when sin is pressing in against us, we must in that moment, though we feel sin's power and we may be tempted to believe and to think that we are still slaves to sin, though we feel its temptation, in that moment we must reckon it to be true that we have died and we have been raised with Christ. You follow me? This is what we must do. We must reckon what God says is true to be true because it is true. This is how we go forward. We do this not in our own strength. We do this in the power of the Spirit. <clears throat> but brothers and sisters, it is a fight. It's a fight. And there are times when you have to actually say it out loud. I don't know. I've, you know, I've told you guys before, and you probably know this about me, but like, I am an extreme verbal processor. I barely know what I'm thinking until I begin to talk, and then I kind of talk out what I'm thinking on the fly. So I personally, I talk to myself all the time. This is a safe place for me, right? I'm not ashamed. Whether I'm driving down the road, I'm talking to myself. When I'm in my office, I try to be a little bit quiet because I'm afraid Conrad and Jeanette are going to think I'm weird if they hear me. But I'm like, like, who's in there? Nobody. It's just me. But I'm talking to myself all the time. Again, I'm not saying you have to do that. If you can, if you can reckon it to be true internally, good for you. That's great. I don't care. But what I'm saying is don't be afraid to, at times, I think that even if you're an internal processor and you're not as verbal as I am, I think even still at times in the midst of this battle, there are times where you've just got to say out loud what you know to be true in your fight against the devil. You've got to say, no, I'm dead to that. I am dead to that. I have been raised with Christ. And in that moment, reckon it to be true. You are not making it true. It is true because of what Christ did for you. You follow me? Big difference. This isn't just positive self-help, self-talk, and just speaking things into existence. And, you know, uh, you know Oprah Winfrey is big on this book called The Secret. And if we just say it out loud, the universe kind of like brings it to us. This is not that. I'm talking about knowing and believing something is true. And why do we believe it's true as Christians? Because the Bible clearly says this is what Christ has done for us. And in light of that, in light of what God has done decisively and irrevocably, we reckon to be true and we live in light of it. And it starts, again, not just with what we must do, but it starts with who we are. That we have died and we've been raised with Christ. There's a story that um, maybe some of you have heard this. I've heard many a preacher use it throughout the years. I don't think I ever have here. But the story of uh, uh, St. Uh, Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers. And um, before coming to Christ, Augustine was admittedly very sexually promiscuous. And the story goes that one day after coming after coming to Christ, he was walking through the city of Carthage um, and where he eventually was, was the bi bi bishop of the church in Carthage and one of his former mistresses passed him by on, on the street. And she said, Augustine, it is I, it is I. But he began to flee away and he says, ah, but it is not I. Like, we kind of chuckle about that, but like I'm saying, that's exactly what it means to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Every one of you, if you, believe, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe that the Spirit of God dwells in you, that you're born again, look at me. Just look at me in the eye for a second, okay? I want to tell you something, and if you don't get anything else that I'm talking about this morning, I want you to get this. Look at me. If you have been born again, you are not who you were. 
You're not the same anymore, but I still feel the same. I don't care what you feel like. I'm telling you what the Bible says. You are not who you were. You were dead to sin, and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. His spirit dwells in you. It is no longer you, but it is Christ in you. We must reckon this to be true again and again. And you say, well, Eric, how, here, here's the million-dollar question. Like, how often do I need to do this? Listen to me. I'm going to give you the answer. How often do you need to do it? As often is as necessary. As often is as necessary. There are good days and there are bad days. You know, we ask each other, like, is it a good day? Yeah, it's a good day. Like, what do we mean by that? I don't know. We don't know. I don't think we know. We say, yeah, it's a good day. All right. But you do. You kind of have, like, in our battle against Satan and sin, there's kind of good days and bad days. There are days when you wake up and, you know, in the morning you do your devotions and that, you, yeah, I'm, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God and Christ Jesus. And that's kind of all it takes. But there are other days where it is a moment-by-moment -moment battle. But you don't stop after five times. You don't stop after ten times. You don't stop after a hundred times. As often as is necessary, you, we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how we fight our battles, folks. All the while knowing that it is not us, but it is the Spirit of God in us that is there to help us um, as we abide in him. You know, the, the, the Christian life is so much more. Like, this is what Paul's been describing. It's so much more than just outward conformity to a few rules. There's something supernatural that happens inside of us. There's a, there's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary named William Edwards who shares um, a very simple uh, but... Um, but I think effective and relevant story for how change in the Christian life, this process of God sanctifying us, molding us into the image of Christ, has to go much deeper than just on the surface. Um, he says, although I grew up in the church, my life reflected little of the gospel I professed to believe as I entered college. Greater freedom allowed for more opportunities to pursue sensuality and various kinds of impurity, to use Paul's language of Ephesians 4. After a time, however, I became tired of the typical routine <clears throat> of indulging these desires. I sensed their emptiness and experienced a measure of conviction. I decided instead to give myself to my studies. I worked diligently. I had ambitions. I did well. Listen, outwardly, much had changed, and no one thought to question how I live now. Yet, I came to realize that I was actually no different from before. None of my new behaviors came from a love for God or a love for my neighbor. They all flowed from a great love for myself, as had my previous patterns of indulgence. The only difference was that my aim was not immediate gratification but rather a desire for acclaim and recognition for my intelligence and my ability. Though refined, sin, it still remained, stemming from self-centered desires that needed to be exposed. I've seen a lot of that in my own life as well, too. Where, where outwardly, we just try to change actions but we're not actually reckoning ourselves
to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A new reckoning about who we are. Say the same thing another way. The Christian life is not simply trading sex, drugs, and rock and roll for being a good law-abiding citizen who gets a haircut and keeps their yard mowed. The Christian life is about a new life entirely. It's one that is, being, that is marked by love for Jesus and love for doing his will. And this is what Paul is, is, is calling us to here again and again in the chapter. Let me just read some of the text and we'll continue to unpack it here. But he says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. And again, I kind of flashed over this a little bit ago. But that word presented there, it's the same idea as reckoning. So with reckoning, it's more the idea of reckoning all that we are to be dead to sin. In presenting, he tends to talk about it more just in regards to one part of our body, our, our hand, our eye, our feet, you know, our ears, what we listen to, different things, one part of our being. But it's the same idea, we present it um, as dead and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Anyway, middle of verse 19, he says, leading to more and more lawlessness. So now present your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to righteous, righteousness, reckon this to be so. Though your hand wants to reach out and take, though your eye wants to look at something that it shouldn't, reckon it, present it to Christ as a slave, knowing that it is. It is a slave because he's bought you with his blood. And this, <coughs> excuse me, this leads to Sanctification. So you see the, the little phrase leading to there. You also see the, um, the word leads to sanctification down in verse 22. But why do I point out that little phrase leading to? Because it is a process where justification happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over a long process, not just part of the Christian life, but all of the Christian life. Now, in verses 20 through 22, um, Paul gives, you could probably say this different ways, but I'm going to give you six motivating factors in the pursuit of holiness. Paul is trying to motivate us here um, as to why our sin is no longer logical, we should no longer pursue it, and the reward and benefit of reckoning ourselves dead to sin, presenting the members of our body as alive to Christ as, as his slaves. I'm just going to run through these quickly, okay, in verses 20 through 22. Number one, there's three negative ones and three positive ones, but number one, the old way of life produced nothing but bondage and slavery. Okay? So in verse 20, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Before coming to know Christ, you might try to change outwardly. You might grasp on to a little bit of change. You might like drop a bad habit. You might be able to like stop cussing for, for a little bit. But, it, but you're ultimately free in regards to not being able to live righteously because the righteous one does not live in you. And so this old way of life produced nothing but sin ultimately um, ultimately, sin was going to have the last word. No matter how hard you try to climb yourself up out of the pit, it is inevitable that you are going to slide back down in because you cannot rescue yourself. You who are unrighteous cannot rescue yourself from unrighteousness. You need a righteous one, a liberator, a deliverer to come and to do that. 
Paul says, this is what you were. You were slaves of sin. Why would you want to go back to the same bondage of which you once, at some point, if you've come to know Christ, you had to cry out and admit that you were a sinner and acknowledge that you hate your sin and that you need delivered from it because you can't deliver yourself. And so if we were in bondage, we wanted delivered from that bondage, why would we want to go back to that bondage? And we're like, oh yeah, I know that, I know, but I need to be reminded of it. Paul's reminding us of it. We need to remind each other of this, amen? Brothers, just don't, don't, don't go back to that old way of life. It's nothing but slavery. Secondly, the old way of life where we found ourselves in slavery, it also produces nothing but shame. Nothing but shame. He says in verse, beginning of verse 21, he says, but what, what fruit, and, and the idea here of fruit is, um, fruit is used slightly differently in the Bible. Here, it's the idea of benefit. You could really just insert the word benefit, but it is literally fruit is the word. He says, but what fruit or benefit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So as you look back on your old sinful ways, what, what is there there for you other than shame? He's saying there's, there's no need to go back to that. We don't, want, we don't want any more shame. I think he's calling us here to stop for a second. And if you can do this, I'm just going to give you 10 seconds, okay? But think about your former way of life. Think about your life, if you can, before you came to know Jesus. I've shared this with you guys before, but this isn't like a real theological statement. But when I, for many years, when I used to describe my life before coming to know Jesus, what, what I felt was, and I knew it was because of my sin, my rebellion against God, is I felt like when you would go up a roller coaster and then you go down the first steep hill, you, you know that feeling of that split second where you feel like you're free falling? Does anybody else get that? Anybody? Okay, just me. But you just feel like that weird feeling in your stomach. That's how I felt all the time. Because I was free falling. I didn't know who was, who was going to catch me. I knew I couldn't catch myself. I knew that I was in trouble. It was a way of shame. And I think Paul is, and if you can, again, not, to, not to stir up shame, but remember. Remember what he saved you from. Remember what he did for you. So it was bondage, it produced shame. Thirdly, the old way of life ends in death. Even if there were parts of the bondage and slavery that you enjoyed, even if shame wasn't that big of a deal, what ultimately is it going to produce? It's just going to produce death. End of verse 21, he says, for the end of those things is death. Again, it's, it's, very, it's very logical. There's three negative reasons. Don't, like, don't, don't do this. Turn away from it. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. And this is something that I wanted to say earlier, but I, I kind of skipped over it in my notes, is that, is that the, guys, the pursuit of holiness is not incongruent with the gospel of grace alone. We have been saved by his grace, delivered from this bondage to sin, to now pursue a holy life. A holy life. That's what we were saved from, but pursuing holiness is what we were saved for. Not so that we would be delivered, but because we have been delivered. We strive for holiness, and, and our, our role in sanctification, though it is ultimately God that does it, 
and it is supernatural. We strive for holiness with a grace-driven effort that delights in the Father's glory. That's what we're after. Now, three positive reasons Paul gives here to pursue this life of holiness. Again, to reckon yourselves dead to sin, to present every part of who you are to Christ. Here's the three positive ones. Number one, you belong to God and are free from sin. You belong to him. This is who, this is who you are. You're not going to be it. Just someday, yeah, someday sin's presence will literally be eradicated. Temptation will be no more. Glory, hallelujah, I can't wait for that day. But right now, you are free from sin. He says it again and again, verse 22. But now that you have been, past tense, we've seen him write this way through the entire chapter. And again, because it is true, that's why we reckon it to be true. We live in light of what is true, what he tells us is true, not what we feel. We belong to God and are set free from sin. Another reason, another positive reason, you are being set apart for him. He is working in your life to set you apart for his purposes. He's saved you by his grace. He's lifted you up out of the miry pit, set your feet upon the rock, and now he is going, going to work to, to clean you up from that old way of life. And it is a, it is a process. I, um, this is going to be weird. I don't know if this works. I'm, I'm thinking of this illustration on the fly. I, iPhone people, anybody? Yeah, Samsung people, we'll pray for you. Get an iPhone. Um, <laughs> My, my current, you know, you got the little mail thing down there. Um, again, this is a safe place, right? My current inbox is 43,753 emails. I, don't judge me, all right? Um, that's four email accounts. Some of them I've had for a long time. And I, uh, if you're trying to get a hold of me, email's not the best way, okay? In case that isn't, I just, I have to have it. Um, but one of the things I've been doing lately is I, is I I've just, as I get into it, every time I go in, I'll go through and, and I have so many just like junk emails from things that I've signed up for, many things I don't think I ever signed up, but somehow they got my email, you know. And I've been going through and I've been unsubscribing. Have you done that? And obviously I've got a long way to go. I've still got 43,000. But I've, I go through and I, and I unsubscribe from these emails. And now they're, they're sneaky, they're tricky. Because usually at the top, I'm really getting into the weeds in this analogy here, but at the top there's a little blue line that says unsubscribe, and I'll click on that. But it usually doesn't unsubscribe me, because I'll notice the next day I'll get another one. But you got to go down to the bottom, and in the fine print, there's this real tiny little link that will say unsubscribe. And then I've been clicking on that. And by the way, if there's a quicker way to do this, please let me know. I'm dumb with this stuff. But anyway, but... I go down and I click on that, and then it takes me to the website, and then I have to click on another thing that says unsubscribe. Okay, well, Eric, why are you telling us this story? Here, here's the idea, and I hope this is helpful. Part of what God does in this new life of sanctification is he, he takes over our email account, so to speak. And he begins to take us through, and he goes down into the fine print of our soul. And, and he shows us where and how to unsubscribe. He, I mean, how, you know, sometimes you'll hear people describe the Christian life, and how many, how many of you have used this or heard somebody talk like this? It's like, man, they'll say, God just keeps peeling back the layers. Anybody? And, and I bet if we asked, you know, some of the old, older saints here, and Paul and Miriam, you know, who I have much respect for, and they're just sitting here in the front row. So, but like, how long have you guys been walking with Jesus? 
And he's still doing this in your life, isn't he? Taking you back into the fine print of your soul. Ah, Eric, you're still subscribed here. There's no reason for this. Unsubscribe. Reckon it to be dead. Okay, Lord. And we, and we do it. Again, it's all his grace because we don't even know. I don't, man, I don't know how to get unsubs- unsubscribed <laughs> from all these junk emails, but Jesus does. He knows how to take me back and, and mold me into the image of Christ, and he calls us to work with him in that, in that process. Um, the third positive reason, the sixth overall reason for just motivating factors in the pursuit of holiness is in the end, rather than death, what you get is eternal life. You get eternal life. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in just a second, but just look here at the end of verse 22. He said, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, leads to this process of being set apart where you're useful to him so that when the gospel came to you, it now goes through you. Again, not that you have to be perfect. He works in your brokenness. He works in your imperfection. Always looking for is a heart that's committed to him. Okay, Um, But in, in the end, it says, he says, its end is eternal Life And eternal here, and I'm going to talk more about this in a second, it's, it's not just quantity like forever, but it's also quality. Eternal life is a whole different type of life that we get. Now, w- another thought here along with this that I think is kind of summarizing these, these reasons that Paul gives here, three negative and three, and three positive. But you'll notice the word fruit, okay? You see it in verse 21 and verse 22. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And then down in verse 22, he says, you've become slaves to God, and the fruit or benefit uh, that you get leads, leads to sanctification. He uses the word fruit here, though, for a reason, because I think he's like wants to pull into our minds this, this idea, this imagery of, of some, something botanical, okay? You know, uh, a plant, a tree, a garden, some, something, something like that. And if I had to just sum up what Paul's saying here in this passage, is he's saying the reason, one of the primary motivating factor in, to turn away from sin and towards holiness is that, listen, who you are, who you are, is no longer fertile soil for sin to grow in. It's not. But Eric, I got a lot of sin. I know, you, you, believe, that, you believe that it is. Because you once were. You once were very fertile soil for sin to grow in. But you're not anymore. And so to continue to plant those seeds of unrighteousness, of lies, of sin, of, of whatever, of, of darkness, brothers and sisters, I, I'm telling you, Christ is at work in your garden. And who you are is no longer fertile soil for sin. He's changing. You know, there, there, are, um, there are certain climates and cultures that are more conducive for certain crops to grow in than others, okay? I'm not a farmer, but I know that around here we got a lot of corn, amen? Praise God for the corn. But not a lot of orange trees they tend to grow in the south. There are certain climates and cultures that are more conducive for, for crops to grow in once we produced sin, our lives were fertile soil for that, but they're not any longer. We still plant it. We, we, like, we, we try to make it live. That's the insanity of sin. 
Because we're not even made for this anymore, yet we still try to get it to sin. Why do we do that? Because that's what we were used to. It's what we were used to, but not anymore. And guys, this is the good news of justification and how it undergirds all of our sanctification is, listen, what God has done in uniting you with Christ cannot be undone by your present actions, though they are inconsistent with your new position in Christ. God will tend the garden of your soul and cultivate it to bring about holiness and joy for his glory. That's what he's going to do. Sanctification is just us simply saying, okay, unsubscribe, okay, unsubscribe, okay, unsubscribe. I'm going where you're going, Lord. And not resisting it, but believing that he's good, no matter how painful it may come. That's a whole other thing, but just by way of um, mentioning it here, this is where the email analogy really breaks down, is it's fairly painless. This process can be very painful. The process can be very painful. And then lastly here, look at verse 23. How many memorized this verse growing up in Sunday school or VBS or something? And usually this verse, we, we tend to learn it in the context of evangelism. And again, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, we're for all the verses, okay? They're all, they're all good. But, but notice here, he's not speaking in terms of evangelism or justification, but he's, he's using this verse in the context of, of motivating Christians towards sanctification. And he says, for the wages of sin is death. And this is just a restatement of everything he's already said. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple of observations quickly about this very well-known verse. Number one, notice that it's wages. 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 You know, when your employer pays you your paycheck, you probably don't. Maybe you'll definitely win employee of the month if you do, but you don't go fall on your knees. Oh, thank you so much for your mercy. No, you earned it. And please understand what Paul's saying here. Death, we earned it. We earned it. It's a wage. Let me press that a little bit more because we got to understand this because so many people get this wrong in regards to understanding God's justice against sinful humanity. Is death, not just physical death, and not just, but also eternal death in the lake of fire. That death is not just a quick knee-jerk reaction by a hot-headed God who tends to fly off the handle. You know that, right? Death is our wage. Death, we earned it. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not the wage, the free gift, the grace gift. Why does he not use wage here? Because it is so precious it could never be earned, ever. Um, again, this not, isn't a perfect illustration, but to, to even think that eternal life is something that could be earned or, or garnered in any way by any action of us is insane. It would be like somebody coming to me and going, how much for your kid? 
How much for Finn? He seems like a nice young lad. Maybe I'd go, hmm, I'm just kidding. Of course not. Be like, you're crazy. There's no price on them. Why? Because they are infinitely valuable to me. Eternal life is infinitely valuable. There's no no price. No way we could earn this. And again, what I said earlier, you got to understand this, that yes, eternal life is eternal. But when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's not always primarily or usually speaking of just quantity, meaning like eternal, that's a long time. (laughs) It's not just that. It's a whole different type of quality. Listen to John 17, 3. I think Jesus says this better than anybody else. He says, he's praying for them in the garden before he's arrested and goes to the cross. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, did you get that? This is eternal life, that they know you. He doesn't say, this is eternal life, that you are going to exist forever somewhere. Is that true? Oh yeah, that's true. But it's not just that. It's not just quantity. It's quality. It's that we, we may know him. You guys know the hymn, when, we, when we've been there 10,000 years. Sing it with me, will you? Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why will we not get tired of it after 10,000 years? Why? Because God is infinitely valuable. We will forever throughout all of eternity be marveling all the time at who he is and how glorious he is. You're like, Eric, you're just overstating this. No, this is exactly what the Bible says. Listen carefully to Ephesians chapter 2. And i got to go back and read the whole seven verses just so that we get it all together. Just, Just listen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And and he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now listen, because this is the part I was wanting to get to. Then he says, so that in the coming ages, 10,000 years from now, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what that's saying? 
the 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, for those that know Christ, we will never fail to marvel at the unending riches of his glorious grace. Now, let's take that for a second and worship team, you can come up and I'll close. Take that idea, if you believe the Bible teaches that, I've just showed you, this idea of eternity. Of not just 10,000 years from now, you know, for most of us, 100 years from now, we're gone. Maybe not even that much. 80 years from now. We're gone. And if you know Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you take your last breath here, you take your first breath in heaven, and, and you, will be, you will be with him. Now get, try to, I know it's hard, but try to get yourself there. 80 years from now, 100 years from now, 10,000 years from now, you use whatever number you like. And how every moment God is going to be unveiling new layers of his glory and his grace. And you try and you meditate upon that. You take that which is true, what the Bible says to be true, and now you take all the weight of that gospel, of that good news, and the sin that comes at you. See, now it doesn't seem that strong. When I've got that good news, when I've got that gospel truth, the sin comes at me, I go, no, 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 I'm dead to you. You're dead to me. I reckon it to be so. And 10,000 years from now, you will be under Christ's feet, and I will be alive with him in glory. To understand how the gospel, how we use the gospel to reckon these other things to be dead and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Such good news. Just bow your heads with me just briefly. And as, we, as I said in the beginning, just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask you and just ask the Holy Spirit to just press on your heart in this moment. Because at the beginning I said that this, this process of justification, it is not just a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And I'm asking you this morning, right now where you sit in this season, what is it that you need to reckon yourself dead to and alive to in Christ Jesus? What part of your being do you need to present as a slave to Christ and to righteousness? I understand that it's hard. I understand that it's painful. Is it in your marriage? Is it with your kids? Is it with your parents? Is it with a coworker? Is it with your finances that, that things haven't turned out the way you thought they were going to turn out and so you're mad at God about it? You, you could fill in a countless number of things here. But please hear me, brother, sister, this morning, right now where you sit, by simple faith, and if you have to say it out loud, you go ahead and say it out loud. I'm, I'm with you. I talk to myself all the time. Or you just say it in the quietness of your own heart. But I want you to say to that thing, no, 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 I'm dead to you. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. And 100 years from now, I'm going to be undoubtedly, certainly experiencing the riches of his glorious grace in ever-increasing measure and with ever-increasing marvel and wonder. You say that right now. Reckon yourself to be dead and alive to him.
Father, please help us. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, I, I so, I so want to be like you. And I'm so not. But I thank you that you you are here, that you've given us your word, and that you stand ready to, to change us again. Please help us, Lord. Lord, I just want to pray for those here right now in this moment. I'm certain that there's some that the battle and the struggle, they are, they are so tired. And they are so exhausted. Heavenly Father, I know that you see them. I pray that you would mightily, mightily strengthen their hearts. And Lord, we pray for the same strength that our Savior prayed within the garden where you said, not, not my will but yours be done. I pray that you'd give them that same strength to die to self. You made it very clear to us, Lord, that if we want to find our life, we've got to lose it. But if we seek to keep it, um, we're in trouble. <laughs> so please help us to die to self that we might live. Thank you for your love for us. Father, you're so good. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.